Oh, Father, once again we pause right now to be reminded of the fact that, Lord, unless your Spirit comes and is amongst us and we are those who hear your words, have spiritual eyes to see, I am at best a motivator up here. I pray that your Spirit will work in our hearts. I pray that we might be moved, especially today and this week, but for all of our lives as believers to worship the King of glory, to have hearts that are full of gratitude unto you, and that that would begin in this life as we would live life with joy because we have set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and for eternity. Be with us even now, Father. Grant me clarity. Grant me courage. Grant me confidence. Grant me conviction that, Lord, we would worship you through the preaching of your word and the application of it in Christ's name. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Verses 1 through 11 is our text for this morning. And it was hard not to want to do all four passages because all four Gospels speak of the triumphal entry. But I will allude to the parallel passages and you can just write those down. All right? But we are going to settle in here in Matthew chapter 21. And I want to read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the living God. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what, has, what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. The foal of a beast a burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, the title of this morning's message is The Presentation of the King. The Presentation of the King. Because that's what we have here. That's what we have here. Today, as you know, is Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Jesus' final week before his death and his resurrection, which we call Passion Week. And today is called Palm Sunday because in the event that we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry, the people cut down palm branches from the trees and, and spread them on the road as, G, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. The triumphal entry is a monumental event, beloved. In fact, all four Gospels make mention of this event so they seem to think that it was utterly important to include this for all believers of all time. And yet we often overlook the triumphal entry and few seem to emphasize it or, or really preach on it. 
kind of bypass even um, Palm Sunday altogether in many pulpits across America, and yet we should emphasize it because of the fact that it was such a huge thing, and all of the gospel writers include this great event. And so we want to look at this great event, because it was truly that, the, the presentation of the king to the Jewish nation at the time, but as we're going to see, it was much different than a typical presentation of a king. And what I want us to think about as we look at the presentation of the king in this passage, we're going to hang our thoughts on some points, but I really want to, as we look at what is, what is described here in his arrival, his presentation to the Jewish nation, I want to stir in us, um, by the, the power of the Spirit of God, as we look at God's word, a sense of, of greater adoration and worship in our hearts towards our king, especially during this time. And not only that, that we would grow in our worship and adoration of Him, but also in appreciation and gratitude to our great King. Because now we as believers, as we look back at that monumental event, we recognize, beloved, that, that Jesus that Jesus was the Passover Lamb who took, takes away the sin of the world. And we have placed our faith in Him. So how much more as we look at this and we read Scripture, Scripture such as these, and we're reminded of the triumphal entry, should we be people who are driven to worship and, and gratitude for our great King? And may that then in turn lead us to want to share about this great King with others around us who desperately, beloved, need to hear of the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to, to see here that this event did not take place, this triumphal entry, by surprise. It came at a very strategic time, didn't it? And so that's really, if you're taking, you're writing down an outline, I want you to take down this point, the strategic time. The strategic time. This event did not happen by surprise. This is the Sunday before Jesus' death and his resurrection. And we know from one of the parallel passages of John chapter 12 and verse 1 that this was the Passover, referred to as the feast in John chapter 12 and verse 12. Maybe the Passover and that particular feast brings images to your mind. Um, but if you remember, um, if you need to, to, to uh, be reminded, in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, the last plague that God used to free his people, the Israelites, was the killing of the firstborn of Egypt. At that time, um, God wanted to free his people, so Pharaoh would not listen. And the last plague was to wipe out all of the firstborn of the Egyptians so that the Pharaoh would let the people go and God would, would use um, the Egyptians as a case in point that he was greater than the gods and the idols of Egypt. At that time, God told Moses that he wanted the Israelites, if he was going to wipe out the firstborn of the Egyptians, he wanted the, the Israelites to take an unblemished male sheep or goat and kill it, slaughter it at twilight. This is in Exodus 11 and 12. And they were to take some of the blood of that animal, that unblemished goat or, or, um, or lamb or sheep, and they were to put it on the, on the doorposts of their homes, some of that blood, and on the lintel of their, of their home, outside of their home, so that at nighttime, when the, when the uh, destroyer, who was the Lord in, in Exodus chapter 12, Yahweh himself, came through and wiped out the firstborn of the Egyptians, when the destroyer would come through, he would pass over the, the homes of the Israelites because of that blood that was out there to symbolize atonement or covering. 
And that the destroyer wouldn't destroy the firstborn of the Israelites as well. Because there would be that blood there to atone for them, if you will. To cover for them. And then in the aftermath of that, of course, you know the rest of the story. The Israelites um, are, are exiled out of Egypt and all the rest of that happens. And God wanted, in remembrance of that great event of his deliverance of the Israelites, of the Passover, he wanted his people to every year celebrate that great event and what we call the Passover feast, the great deliverance of Israel from Egypt, even as seen in that great event. So during this Passover feast, all Jews were required to leave their home outskirts of the outskirts of, of Jerusalem and make their way to the city of Jerusalem. And it's very difficult to, to obviously um, uh, understand the, 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 the um, tremendous anticipation and the celebratory feel and atmosphere of a place like Jerusalem during these feasts. Um, I've, I've tried to think about some examples. All of them fall short. But I remember a few years ago going to the Pasadena Rose Parade with a bunch of friends. And we got there, and it's estimated that close to one million people a year go to the Pasadena Rose Parade. And so we're there, and and I mean, you you cannot even find a parking for that place. I mean, there's cars everywhere, and as soon as you're able to find a parking somewhere, you have to walk uh, long distances just to be able to get a spot. And there are masses of people, right, shoulder to shoulder, people, people bumping off of each other like bumper cars everywhere. And of course... They're fighting for positions, right, to be able to sit down and put down their, their lawn chairs so that they could see the floats later on when they come through. And, of course, then you have the smells, and you can hear. We were about a quarter of a mile away from where the floats were situated, and you can begin to smell the roses, right, of the floats that are going to be coming through. And, of course, you can also smell all the breakfast burritos and the tacos that they were already making, right? But that's neither here nor there. That wasn't the point of it. So there are smells and people that are in masses are there awaiting and with anticipation of this great event. Well, beloved, all the more, a thousand times more, you can even imagine the, what, what Jerusalem must have been like. It was, this was a big deal. A big deal. Masses of people were, were coming into Jerusalem. Were there. Jerusalem is bursting at the seams. It is estimated that the population at the time of Jerusalem, during that time, Jesus' time, was approximately somewhere around 100,000 people just in Jerusalem. But during these feasts, according to the historian Josephus, it is estimated that more than 2 million people were in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Masses of people are already in the city and masses of pilgrims are headed into the city. People are bumping into each other. You can imagine families arriving from outside of Jerusalem with their unblemished male lamb to to slaughter, right? Or maybe extras to give away to family members. And there's people that are selling lambs for the sacrifice that is to take place that Friday. All kinds of people are there. The smell of sacrifice already. Preparations for sacrifices that are going to be taking place just in a, in a few days. There is a, there's a great atmosphere of anticipation. It is, it is electric. It is a prime time in Jerusalem for something great to happen. And so what I want you to recognize is, is that Jesus doesn't arrive here. The presentation of the king doesn't happen in some peripheral way. This is, this is a strategic time that is ordained by God for this to take place. 
And of course, one of the things that is taking place during this time, in the midst of all of this activity that is taking place, and this atmosphere of anticipation that is so electric, are these conversations about this one, this one infamous person he's becoming. His name is Jesus. People have heard of him. Even pilgrims from outside of Jerusalem and people from within Jerusalem have heard even from the religious leaders about this one who who is a revolutionary. This one who has great power and they oppose him. They've heard different opinions about Jesus Christ. And especially those who are coming in from the region of, of Galilee. They've beheld his power. Many people who are living there in Jerusalem and coming in from Galilee, they've heard about Jesus. They're acquainted with him. They've seen his miracles. They've beheld his great power. They see him as a great teacher. They think of him as a great prophet. In fact, within the last 24 hours of the triumphal entry here, there was a large crowd that had visited nearby the nearby city of Bethany, not so much for Jesus, to see Jesus, but more importantly to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had just raised from the dead. This is in John chapter 12 and verse 9. So Jesus is, has become very popular, a very popular personality. There are people who know about him, who are wondering, is this the one? Is this the one, the long-awaited one who's going to bring deliverance? So due to many, many people's exposure to Jesus and even the raising of Lazarus or hearing about Lazarus, it's very possible that when Jesus begins to ascend to the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, not only were there people who were already there waiting for Jesus, but there are people who, are, who had followed Jesus to the entrance of the city because of the fact that he had grown in great popularity. So listen, this is a strategic time for maximum exposure and impact. The stage is set For the presentation of the king. But what we see is that the people don't get what they expected, right? Next, we see the humble servant. The humble servant. Not just a strategic time, but the humble servant. Look at verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Down in verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Now you need to understand that what happens here is very unexpected. Very unexpected. And so anticlimactic, right? The Jewish expectation, beloved, at the time was generally that there would be this promised Messiah that would be a political conqueror and deliverer. According to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, King David is told that that one day, one of his descendants would be a, a forever king. One who would reign after in his lineage, whose kingdom would be forever. And so there was this anticipation that there would be a king like the days of Moses, if you will, who in the days of Moses, Moses delivered the people from Egypt, was used by God to do that. The anticipation would be that somebody would arise, this Messiah would come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and now be the, the, the political conqueror and deliverer, for, deliverer from the oppression this time of another great kingdom called Rome. This is the conquering hero, the victor, that they are expecting at this time. Now, if you're a Jewish person at the time, I ask you, 
If you're looking for that kind of political conqueror and deliverer, somebody who's going to bring relief from the oppression of the Romans upon you and your family, this is not what you expect here, what happens. This is not the kind of king that you're expected, expecting. Jesus, having come to, the, to this place called Bethphage, which was a town near the Mount of Olives, and close to, to Bethany where Jesus had healed Lazarus, sends a couple of his disciples according to verses 1 and 2, and he gives them some odd or strange instructions. That perhaps It says in John chapter 12, verse 16, that the disciples did not uh, understand these things, but later they did. John 12 is a parallel passage. So even the disciples don't understand what Jesus is ordering them here or some of his actions. Jesus tells them to enter the village where they're going to find these animals and bring back a, a, a female donkey and her colt. By the way, all four Gospels make reference to a young colt, but only here in Matthew is the colt's mother mentioned. And most people, most commentators comment that the reason why Jesus asks for the mother, even though he's going to sit on the young colt, he asks for the mother to be brought so that the young colt will also follow. So it was already difficult enough to get the young colt to follow someone, let alone without its mother. So that's why they mentioned that perhaps Jesus asks for both. But in any case, he asks for them to be brought. And, you know, we often have images of, of donkeys in our contemporary day, right? We go to the... I don't know, the L.A. Zoo or the San Diego Zoo or whatever, and we see these donkeys or maybe even locally here in farming communities, and we have this image of, of American donkeys, right? And all donkeys probably look like these American donkeys, which are a little bit bigger. But in New Testament times, these, these donkeys were a lot smaller, a lot smaller, almost, they were almost like ponies, mini ponies, okay? To, so to see a grown man on one of these donkeys would have been somewhat funny to us, let alone sitting on, on this young colt uh, over at Griffith Park. Maybe you've been there before. There are these precious little ponies that, that, that they sit toddlers on top of, right? And they're miniature little things. I mean, there's some bigger ones, but, well, they're like pathetic looking, right? They're tiny. I mean, imagine if myself or one of, one of you dads would, would ask these people at Griffith Park that instead of your toddler getting on top of this pony, you sit on top of this pony, I mean, that would be a pretty pathetic, silly uh, picture, right? And yet, beloved, this is the type of animal that our Lord Jesus chose to sit on. A young colt. And at first glance, we might look at this and think, Whoa, Jesus seems awfully weak. This presentation of this king, is he, is he really a c- capable? And yet we know better, don't we? We've read the accounts of Jesus and his disciples have seen him speak great words of wisdom. They have seen him perform great miracles and perform great works of power that point to the fact that he's someone greater than just a man, right? We know that Jesus had already shown his power over this natural and supernatural world. But we might look at this picture and think, boy, this is a a pretty silly king that is coming here. And yet there's this... This sense in this passage that he's still in control, that he's in full authority over everything that is happening, that none of this is, is surprising. Note how throughout this passage there is, exists a great paradox, doesn't it? 
On the one hand, Jesus is asking for these, these dumb animals, which may indicate weakness. But on the other hand, he is in full authority, according to verses 2 and 3. He commands his disciples to go and obtain, bring back these, these animals. He tells them exactly where they will find what they will find. You will find a donkey and a colt with her. He tells them exactly what to do. Untie them and bring them to me. Don't ask for permission. And if anybody asks you, tell them the Lord has need of them. Right? According to Mark 11, verse 3, the parallel passage to this, says that the bystanders, or the owners most likely, gave them permission when they were, when they were told that the Lord had need of them. So in verses 6 and 7, they did just as Jesus had, had commanded them. There, Jesus is in full control full authority over everything that is taking place. This is not taking him by surprise. And so they bring these animals, they patted the place where Jesus would sit, and Jesus sits down on the young colt, according to Mark chapter 11 and verse 7. Throughout his ministry, beloved, and even now in his triumphal entry, Jesus is in full control of his mission, isn't he? And as God, He is able to order circumstances and nature and even people as He so pleases to fulfill His Father's will according to the Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah. I got that great sense of comfort as I even saw this. This great paradox of, of humility and yet power, of gentleness in, in our Lord Jesus. Power under control, right? Yet He is still in fullness of authority, which makes His presentation here all the more glorious i mean if you were going to present yourself as king this is not the way that you would do it we've all seen images of a king being presented and and crowned right either in movies that we've watched or real life examples like the crowning of the of the queen over in england and in europe in these great events so much posh and pomp that comes with it and so much money and possessions that are flaunted right and great uh, kingly apparel I was watching the, the movie, even, even movies and cartoons get this. When there's a king that enters, there's great pomp and there's great fluff that comes with that. Uh, Chloe and I were watching Aladdin recently, right? And some of you have seen that. And at one point, um, Prince Ali comes in, who's Aladdin, and he comes in arriving with great pomp and kingly attire and, and everybody singing and the genie's coming in with all this whole parade of people. And Chloe, of course, starts dancing out in the living room, right? Because she sees the celebration of this king who's coming in and it's funny to her. I mean, even cartoons get it. What did the people expect, beloved? A revolutionary and political deliverer, and that's not what they got. One who would free them from the oppression of Rome, such as when Moses delivered the people um, and the power of God from Egypt several hundred years earlier. And what did they get instead? They got a humble servant. That's who was presented on that day. What is the way of the world, beloved? Exalt yourself. Make much of yourself. Step on others, one-up other people in order to get what you want. The way of the world is self-exaltation. As believers, we look at our Savior. He was a humble servant who was more powerful than anyone, had all power. We've seen it in Colossians, preeminent over creation and preeminent over the church. And yet look at the way he walks in and comes in in the triumphal entry as a humble servant. Great paradox, isn't it? Jesus does not enter Jerusalem on a mighty white horse, but on a lowly, puny, stupid donkey. And that was his choice. 
He doesn't come in dress with clothes fitting for a king, but in humble attire more fitting for a servant. He does not come in heralding himself proudly and with great pomp like the, the kings of the earth, but humble and, and lowly, and yet he has all infinite, he's infinite in power and in wisdom. This was the way of our Savior, beloved. So anticlimactic, isn't it? This presentation of himself. So unembellished. So unconventional. So unexpected from what people of the day believe that this Messiah should be. But let me tell you something. It was exactly what he meant to do. Sovereign over this. This was his strategy all along. Because he wasn't going to give the, the, the crowds and the multitudes who were misguided of the day a wrong picture of himself and give them what they wanted, a conquering hero and political deliverer from earthly treasures and possessions or oppression rather. He was one who was a humble servant. They were enamored by his miracles and his great power and his ability to feed them and to clothe them and to do all of these things. And he was a humble servant. And he wanted them to know that not a proud reigning human dictator. Remember what he, how he described himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's how he described himself. Did he have infinite power? Yes or no? Yes. In Philippians 2, it says that the, the Son of God there humbled himself when he clothed himself with humanity. The eternal Son of God added humanity to his deity. It says that he humbled himself in coming to earth by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such was the pathway leading to exaltation of our Savior, beloved. Humility before exaltation. And it was His choice to do that according to His Father's will. And this is why it says, or He says, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the meek or the humble, for the meek or the humble will inherit the earth. Not only is this the way, humility and gentleness and meekness, the way of our Savior, even as we see here, but it is the way of those who will follow Christ as well, must humble themselves and come in meekness and bow before the King and live that way on this earth. So this was a different kind of King. And we might say at this point, we may think that this was not the way it was supposed to be. Surely, surely this was a mistake. Surely this was a surprise to Jesus that this would be the, the manner of entrance. But nothing here, beloved, as I said, surprises Jesus. It was planned from long ago. So thirdly, notice the fulfilled prophecy. The fulfilled prophecy in verses 4 and 5. It says in verse 4, This took place or has happened. Listen to this. To fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. In other words, this is the way that it was supposed to be, says Matthew, to all of us. 
This was the way that Jesus designed it. And then verse 5 is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, which is essentially the, the nation, the Jewish nation, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. What kind of king? What kind of king? Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Yikes. What a different kind of king. But it's exactly the way that it was designed, right? Like I said, it's a quotation from Zechariah 9. The prophet is predicting the Messiah's arrival, the, the long-awaited one who would bring salvation to the, to the nations. And Zechariah, beloved, in Zechariah chapter 9, is writing some 500 years approximately before the triumphal entry. You want to talk about you having confidence in the Word of God? Look at another fulfilled prophecy here. Exactly as it was foretold that this king would come in this way. Nobody would have believed that. That Jesus would have come in that way. But it happened according to God's plan. So no surprise. No surprise. So by all that we see here, many seem at least to acknowledge that Jesus' miracles and manifest power, as we're going to see, point to Him as being that one, but, but they don't understand the nature of, of what He came to do. In fact, fourthly, notice the superficial praise. The superficial praise of the people. Listen, it happened at that time, beloved, as we're going to see right now, and it happens today, where people will always be enamored by Jesus for the wrong reasons, Right? For the wrong reasons. People who feel oppressed, always looking to Jesus, but they're, they're looking to Him is misguided in many ways. People who give lip service to Jesus for, for a time because they believe that He will give them what they, what they think they need according to their own definition of their own needs, who will fulfill their dreams, but they don't understand who Jesus is, why He came, and what He requires of them. There will always be people that way. And there were people even amongst the multitudes in that day. Such as the majority of the crowd. Notice in verse 8. What is their response? Most of the crowd or the multitudes spread their coats in the road. And others were cutting down, cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So you have these actions and, and words that are befitting for a king as, as, as many, many people are ascribing uh, uh, kingly authority to Jesus and honor to him. They spread their, their coats on the road. Essentially, they're giving him the red carpet. Like when Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13 is, is, a, is um, uh, inaugurated as, as a king. People laid down, it says, their garments under him, treating him like a king. They laid out the carpet for, for Jesus, honoring him that way. They cut down palm branches and lay them out for him. Palm branches, and by that time, symbolized a celebration of, of victory. The practice went back at least a couple of centuries earlier to, to symbolize praise for victory or military conquering by someone. And so the people understand what the significance of this is. People, beloved, 
Make no mistake about it. They believed him, many people, to be the promised Messiah who was going to bring them salvation and victory from their enemies, namely Rome. And they are excited and there's exuberance. Their popular Messiah has has arrived to deliver the goods that they expect according to their own definition. In verse 9, in fact, look at there. It talks about what they were saying. It says in verse 9, Hosanna, they were shouting, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That is a a quotation there of Psalm 118 verse 26, which is a, a messianic psalm. And as my brother said earlier, Hosanna basically means give salvation now. Give salvation now to the son of David they're ascribing. It is a word of praise, but at the same time, a a cry for salvation and deliverance with confidence that this is what is happening. Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is, is found, are found in what is known as the Hallel Psalms. Psalm, Psalms 113 to 118, which basically Hallel means praise. Praise Psalms. And the Jewish pilgrims who were there knew that on the morning of the, at the Feast of Tabernacles or other Jewish feasts, the, the Hallel Psalms were sung. The praise Psalms ascribing glory to the King of glory or praise to the King of glory. Jewish pilgrims were familiar with the words of the Hallel Psalms. Notice how they refer to him. They refer to him as a son of David. Son of David. According to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, as I referenced earlier, David would, would have a descendant who would be the forever king, who would have a, an everlasting kingdom. And so the, the people are recognizing Jesus as that one promised one. In fact, according to Luke 19, verses 39 through 40, it is at this point that the Pharisees rebuked the multitudes for this. But Jesus told them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. So he doesn't stop the people because they are ascribing glory, the glory that is due Jesus. So the crowds are affirming That this is the fulfillment of this one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the King. They have seen what He can do. Including the raising of of Lazarus from from the dead. That He has great power. There was a great stir. According to verse 10, some did not know who Jesus was. Probably some who had arrived from outside of Jerusalem. Verse 11, some believed him to be a prophet, maybe by word of mouth that he had heard, they had heard that he was from, from Nazareth and that's where he came from and that's where he grew up. There's a great stir. Many different opinions about Jesus. But the bulk of the multitudes, beloved, believed that he was the Messiah, the son of David. But here's the thing. They didn't understand the nature of what he had come to do, right? I mean... How ironic, isn't it? How ironic that here is this this strategic moment where thousands and thousands of people are there in Jerusalem. Packed out place. Great anticipation. And they are celebrating the Passover. The great event of God's deliverance of the Israelites going back to Exodus chapters 11 and 12. And yet, beloved, listen, they are missing the Passover lamb. They are misguided in their, in their view of who Jesus is. 
I'm sure that there weren't, there weren't only those who, who, were, who were rebellious towards Rome, but other Israelites who were just feeling oppressed by Rome. And, and Lord, oh God, when are you going to deliver us again? And here is one who they really feel is going to, to deliver them. But they missed the nature of who he was and what he had come to do. Remember John the Baptist in John chapter 1? Two different times, he tells his own followers, don't look at me, essentially, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he points to Jesus. He must decrease, John the Baptist, but Jesus must increase because he's the Lamb. He's the one who's going to come and, yes, establish a kingly rule someday, but first comes, what? Atonement for the sins of each of us and a community that he is going to unite. They had missed the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, beloved. They had missed the fact that he had not come to give them freedom from the, from the oppression of Rome, but from something far more powerful, far more powerful than any human kingdom or oppressor, beloved. This enemy called sin. Sin. That none of us can find forgiveness because of on our own. Not by our works, not by our merit, not by our religion, without devotion and relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot solve that problem. And Jesus came to, to, to earth to, to bring a greater deliverance of eternal significance from a greater power than Rome even. And that is the, the, the enslavement to sin that the people had. And that we all have had, right? Prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So the people were looking to Jesus for salvation, but not a spiritual one because they understood their desperate predicament of, of, of bankruptcy before God. It is evident later on that Jesus is not going to deliver them from Rome's oppression, at least in the immediate. And so they don't want this Jesus anymore. They only wanted Jesus if he was going to deliver the goods that they were expecting their Jewish Messiah to deliver. So when he did not, guess what the, the bulk of the multitudes did? They rejected him. Why did they do this? For the same reason, beloved, that many people today reject Jesus. The Jewish nation wanted a, mess a Messiah whom they could embrace on their own terms. On their own terms. One who, as he had done already, to some extent or another, could feed them, could give them every, every earthly good that they wanted, who, who did miracles, who displayed great power. In fact, in Luke 19.37, it says that people were praising him for all the miracles which they had seen. And in John 12, I told you that multitudes were following him who had visited Bethany the day before on Saturday to see Lazarus because, oh, what a great miracle wonder worker he is. And many of those people followed him in then in the, during the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, singing Hosanna, give salvation now, because they were enamored by everything that he had done in the great miracles. People wanted the, the privileges, beloved. But time and time again throughout Jesus' ministry, when he presents his demands for following him and for discipleship, they don't want him anymore. They wanted the gifts, but not the giver, right? How true is this today, beloved? How true it is today? You know, times haven't changed a whole lot. People still want Jesus on their own terms. 
people think that they know what they need, and they call upon Jesus with the expectation that Jesus will deliver all of those needs for them as they define them. But they don't want a Jesus who calls upon them to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. They don't want a Jesus who requires all of their allegiance and who requires selflessness, but who promises infinite happiness and joy beyond anything that they were experienced of anything that they can have on earth or from anything that they can have on earth. There are people, and you and I have come across them, who want a Jesus who who promises them happiness, especially in our country, beloved. We are especially susceptible and vulnerable to this. People want a Jesus who promises them happiness and comfort and prosperity and gifts of all sorts. You want to know primarily where the prosperity gospel comes from, beloved, and who championed it into other countries? Who did? America. America. Because we're so fixated upon that. On selling a Jesus, offering a Jesus to people who gives them earthly possessions and earthly treasures. Who gives them everything that they want. And so we export it out, coming out of here. I've been to foreign countries. And I'm sure my my brother Tim and others that have traveled, others of you who have traveled, who've gone to these training centers or other places where we've done conferences. You know what the pastors and leaders are reading there? Stuff coming out of America. Trash coming out of America. The prosperity gospel coming out of America. Prominent false teachers and heretics from here in the States. People have always been, and people buy it, beloved, because people have always been enamored by the earthly, right? All of us are. We want it so bad. We're so fixated upon possessions and earthly treasures. It was no different in Jesus' day. They wanted comfort and prosperity and gifts, right? Today we have the same thing. Jesus is going to give me health, wealth, prosperity, all of these things that I want. I can give him, a, 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 metaphorically speaking, a piece of paper with everything that I want on that paper, and he's going to just say yes to me. I'll take Jesus like that. Give me that, Jesus. But as soon as you start talking about the, the cost of Jesus, right, to follow him, to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus, nobody wants to have anything with Jesus anymore. As soon as we tell them that Jesus doesn't save people who want to be the center of the universe, but who want him to be this, uh, acknowledge him as a center and their circumference of everything in their life, they don't want to hear about Jesus anymore. You want to know what the core problem of mankind is, beloved, and the, the root of every sin that you and I in thought or in action or in word is? Self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. That's what it all comes down to. We put ourselves, the mighty self, the idol of self before King Jesus. Even as Christians, we do that every single day, every moment of the day sometimes. The multitudes were earthly minded, weren't they? And focused on the temporal and so are people today, beloved. Focused on earthly comforts. How sad 
And when we share the gospel and we will tell people even this week about this great Savior, people will be more fixated upon the things of this life than the state of the eternal soul, right? Finding happiness and fulfillment, even family that you may have. Visitors that are going to come on Resurrection Sunday, they will reject the Lord. And we pray that they won't, but they will reject Him because they're so fixated upon these things. And they will miss the Passover lamb. Even people who are religious, even Catholics who are so devoted during this time, miss the significance of what Jesus did in the triumphal entry that He came to to grant forgiveness of sins apart from works and any human merit. And so the Jewish nation did not recognize their true need, that it was deliverance from their sin. And yet the irony, beloved, is that that's what Jesus came to do, right? He came to deliver from sins. And I want to tell you this morning and remind us, even as Americans who live here who are believers, beloved, what our country needs most is to acknowledge Jesus as king. That's what our country needs most. What our country does not need most is social reform, political reform, deliverance from all poverty, for poverty will exist until King Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom. We don't need those things, ultimately. We don't need deliverance from any earthly power. We don't need a stronger democracy or greater freedom of expression in our country. What we need is freedom from the power and the penalty of our sin, beloved. That's what we need. And Jesus, the Passover lamb, came in offering that kind of deliverance and they missed it. Sin is our greatest enemy. Sin is what leads to earthly death, beloved, and eternal separation from God. And Jesus came to deliver the captives and set them free from sin and sin's corruption and penalty and punishment. That's why he came, to seek and to save the lost. For us as believers, beloved, this is what makes the presentation of this king so glorious. That from a human standpoint, those who read this account who are non-believers, look at this and it's a joke. But if you have spiritual eyes to see, this is amazing and profound because we know the whole story. And that Friday he's going to atone for sins, amen? And then Sunday he rises from the dead and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father interceding for our sins. And it all started with him clothing himself with humanity, the eternal Son of God, coming to earth, living a perfect life that you and I could not live, suffering on our behalf, not reviling in return, going to the cross to make atonement for our sins, being punished, and then one day rising again, beloved. That by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. Oh, beloved, as believers, we can look back at this great event and recognize its, its great significance, right? And be comforted by, that it was all according to the plan of God and the faithfulness of Almighty God who set this plan in motion for our redemption unto His glory. Just five days later, He's going to the cross, as promised, Right? And as we're going to see when we're together on Friday night, and I hope all of you can make it, right? For at least just an hour, we're going to focus on the atonement of this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a beautiful for us to be able to look back, beloved, 
and to relish and to worship our King. And, and listen, we can cry out Hosanna in the truest way, as my brother Tim Adams said. Hosanna! Because we have, as we look back now in our lives in this account, we have received salvation, beloved, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. He has saved us. So all the more we should be worshiping our King during this time, beloved. All the more grateful and thankful for what He has done. And all the more propelled to sharing our faith with others who need to realize that the only hope that they have on this earth and for eternity is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Only in Jesus Christ. We worship Him as our King. The one who is a humble servant, but also the exalted King, beloved, who's coming back someday. Amen? Let me pray for us, and my brother's going to come up. Oh, Lord, I'm so overwhelmed, Father, with a sense of conviction, Lord, that every single day, myself, and I'm sure that we can all confess and testify that we do not cherish your Son as our King as we should. And we don't live in the light of His reign soon to come. And we don't live in the light of the fact that we've been forgiven of our sins and of our guilt. Oh, Lord, help us to be people who are, who are worshipful, especially during this time, that we would look beyond the passing uh, pleasures of sin and outside of our circumstances, Father, and see those things as things that are to, to fan the flame and the fire in our own hearts of worship. Help us to be people full of gratitude, that the world around us would see that. So that they would ask, what is it that makes you different? Why are you so joyful? Why are you so different? And may we have an opportunity to share about the one who is our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Lord and Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.